Hello and welcome to the weekly Bunker Roundtable. I'm Justin Quirk. It's a dirty job and no one wants to do it. Why does Liz Truss think that British workers aren't grafting hard enough? Plus, six months into Russia's war in Ukraine, where is the conflict heading? And as the cheap flight era comes to an end, are we all really ready for a British seaside holiday? Tetanus boosters all round, it's this week's Bunker. Thanks for joining us here on The Bunker. A quick reminder that you can support our work on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. From as little as £2 a month, you too can join our thronging masses and get the shows early and ad-free, plus great merchandise. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Now, let's meet today's panel. First up, welcome back to freelance journalist and author Marie Leconte. Hello! Marie, in an effort to boost the economy, Japan is urging its young people to drink more alcohol. Is drinking more alcohol an issue that the UK doesn't have to worry about right now? Actually, I think yes and no, because if you look at the stats, I think it's more pronounced in the US and other countries. But in Britain as well, young people do drink a lot less than people sort of my age and up, which which is kind of one of those things, actually. Where I, I can see myself sort of turning into Jeremy Clarkson, where my brain is saying, of course, this is good. Obviously, you know, like younger people are healthier, but there is a dark part of my soul that's like, oh, go on. <laughs> have, live a little. <laughs> yeah. Also back on the show, we have former diplomat and host of the Doomsday Watch podcast, Arthur Snell. Hello. Arthur, even by the standards of the current news, Saturday night's car bomb assassination of Daria Dugina, the daughter of leading Russian nationalist and advisor to President Putin, Alexander Dugin, was quite something. Um, What do we know about what happened? Well, we know the basic facts, which is that Dugin and his daughter Dugina had both attended this kind of far-right sort of festival thing uh, in Russia, and they were supposedly going to travel in the same vehicle to get back to Moscow. And at the last minute, and maybe is this suspicious or not, who knows, Dugan decided to use a different vehicle, and the vehicle his daughter was in then blew up, and uh, killing her. And there were shots of Dugan looking very distraught, as you might imagine, at, at the scene of this, this flaming wreckage. It's important to note that, so Dugan himself, very prominent Russian fascist, basically wrote a book called The Foundations of Geopolitics, which sort of asserts Russia's claim to all kinds of territory, including Ukraine. But his daughter was, in her own right, a leading Russian hard-right figure. She's been all over the TV in recent weeks talking about how, uh, you know, Russia should, should take Ukraine and how the Ukrainians should be treated like dirt and so on. It's hard to know exactly who the target was. Definitely too early to say who did it. Lots of theories swirling around. Was it an inside job within Russian nationalist circles? Was it some very dark uh, sort of um, inside job by Putin's people? Or could the Ukrainians have done it? Any of those is plausible. And I'm, I, I'm not in a position to say who is most likely to have done it. The one thing I would say, and I, I was talking to someone uh, in, in, in government circles today about this, People have overestimated the degree to which Dugin was super influential on Putin. Some people have called him Putin's brain, but I don't think that's really true. I don't think that's who he was. Russia has now accused uh, Ukrainian secret services of being behind the killing and has also claimed that the attacker fled to Estonia. Has this got the potential to spill over into a sort of bigger diplomatic incident? Well, it has. So, yeah, the Russians rather implausibly have, have said they've already solved who did it. They've, they've released a picture of a Ukrainian sort of operative who supposedly was in Russia with her 12-year-old daughter, which, again, 
Um, you know, I, I, there's not that many spy movies where the assassin takes their daughter with them. And then supposedly this, this woman escaped in a Mini Cooper, sort of Italian job style, over the border into Estonia. Of course, Russia will use it as an excuse to, uh, to you know, put pressure on Estonia, say that they need to extradite. And of course, they'll put pressure on Ukraine as well. But I think there are so many pre-existing tensions between Estonia and, and Russia that I'm not sure it will add that much. The one thing Russia is not ready to do is, you know, attack Estonia militarily. They've got completely bogged down in Ukraine. And the Estonians are about as hawkish as you can be on Russia. So I don't see how they could escalate anymore. So I think it's in the context of already super high tensions. Russia will continue to try to bully Estonia. And you saw this ghastly woman, Margarita Simonian, who's one of the sort of key mouthpieces of Putin, sort of talking about we need to go and visit some spires in Estonia, talking, obviously making the the reference to the Salisbury attempted assassination. So I can imagine in Estonia there's cause for concern, but I don't think in in really practical terms there's that much Russia will be able to do. Completing the panel today, it's the independence political sketch writer, Tom Peck. Hello, Tom. Hiya. How you doing? Not bad. Tom, there's only 12 days of thrills left in the interminable Trust-Sunak leadership battle, which you've been glued to, like the rest of the country. Uh, (laughs) What will we do without it? And how good has the leadership campaign been for commentators such as yourself? Absolutely dire. From both a professional and also personal perspective. Like, I mean, it is nice to be given something to do in August, which is always a tough time. But Jesus God in heaven, not this, like anything but this. It's been like a like a dystopian horror show, right? There's two candidates taking lumps out of one another constantly, and all they're really doing is fighting to address the parochial and slightly unhinged concerns of, well, like the parochial, slightly unhinged Tory members. And meanwhile, everything is going utterly, utterly to shit. And all anyone can see the actual Prime Minister do is get on and off planes and really not give so much of a toss about anything. And admittedly, yes, it does make life easy for those of us who have to take the piss out of all of it. But on that front, frankly, it's been pretty easy for years. But the psychological toll, it really has been quite something. It just feels entirely, entirely unreal. Like on Monday morning, Citibank announced that they think inflation in the UK in January is going to be 18%. 18%. This stuff terrifies people, right? nominally, this country does have a chancellor. I have no idea what he's doing about it, no idea what he's doing with his time. But all he's done publicly in response to this news is tweet a little picture montage that he's made of all the Scottish MSPs he can find who back Liz Truss. I mean, it's completely mad. Like, it's actually disgusting. And I think there is also a chance that it's so bad that even in two years' time, voters might remember it. But I could be wrong about that. I mean, there's, there's still, um, and this seems incredible to even be saying this, there's still three more hustings to go. Truss is miles ahead. Are the two still treating them like everything to play for? Or are these like the dead rubber games at the end of the season when Watford are playing West Ham and, you know, no one cares what the score is? <laughs> well, if the contest is not all over, then someone's, a lot of people have analysed it very, very wrongly. But if it, if it happens to be more up in the air than people think... I don't think these three more head-to-head contests are going to have any bearing on it whatsoever. It's mind-blowing to think that there's a still a single person still alive who is tuning into them. I mean, I wouldn't watch them if you paid me, and, and that is actually literally true as well. I've, I've stopped watching them, and I am paid to watch them. <laughs> so I don't know whoever else is watching them, because, if, I mean, I've given up. I'm not, I won't be looking at the last three um, 
there was, there will be there must be other things more important things to write about for the likes of me than the same show on repeat that no one is watching. Sit up straight and put that phone down. Does the British public need to work harder? Liz Truss certainly thinks so. The Tory leadership favourite was overheard claiming in a leaked recording that UK workers need more graft. There's a fundamental issue of British working culture, she said, boringly. But when the country's suffering from shrinking real wages and zero-hours contracts, where people are grafting hard of earning less, this is all a bit tin-eared. Can the Tories maintain their image as the party of hard-working people when they've just told very hard-working people that they're not working hard enough, and when the caretaker PM is working, allegedly, from a Greek beach? Just why are Britain's productivity rates so low, despite the British working some of the longest hours in the Western world? Tom, the leaked recording of Liz Truss is from five years ago, but it would be hard to deny this is what the co-author of the infamous Britannia Unchained really does think of British workers. Uh, What did you make of her comments? Well, as you say, the first point is, yes, she made these comments years ago, but they're the same as other comments made in writing in the book Britannia Unchained that were made years before that. I mean, it is scarcely worth dignifying them with any kind of meaningful analysis because they bear no relation to reality, really. They're entirely based on ideology, and they also have the good fortune of being able to excuse the failures of that ideology. I mean, do you remember Liam Fox saying more or less the same thing just after Brexit when he was Trade Secretary, that British businesses didn't want to export because they just wanted to be on the golf course, and then... Lo and behold, what are the consequences of his actual actions? There are insane numbers of form for exporters to fill in, duties to pay on goods that are sent to the EU, and all the big, beautiful trade deals everywhere else that were going to come and make up for the slack. It never happened because it was complete bullshit. Um, there, there is no sense that these bear any relation to what British workers actually do, the lives they lead. I think Liz Truss probably knows that. It's a comforting excuse, but I think she will find it much... It's the sort of thing you can say when you're writing Britannia Unchained 10 years ago, but when you're Prime Minister, you certainly can't say it. And I suspect, in her, in my opinion, what will be a very, very short premiership, we'll find that she won't really be able to escape from the clutches of those comments. I mean, how much of a handle do we have on what she actually believes? I mean, she seems to shift ideological position on an almost weekly basis on the fairly surface frothy stuff but are there things in there which are consistent principles trussism as it were you can never know what she truly believes because she doesn't know what she truly believes herself because she has her beliefs and then she has her own very large amounts of personal ambition and these competing magnetic pulls will drag her in strange directions which makes sense to neither of them on their own if you see what i mean On Brexit, she will always be the great political half-and-half scarf. We can honestly, honestly never know at which point she was telling the truth. It's it's not possible to to discern that from the public comments, which of them are true and which aren't. And to a certain extent, it doesn't really matter what she believes, because the main thing she believes in is just herself, and all ideological principles come after that. So what will shape what she does is the situation she finds herself in, much the same as Boris Johnson. She may have firmer ideological convictions than he does, but she has just the same amount of ambition. So frankly, it won't really matter. I mean, she thinks that she has come some kind of sort of free market neo-Thatcherite, yes? But Margaret Thatcher, for just for one example, would never ever have been stupid enough to think that you could deal with a £900 a month energy bill that will be sent to people who earn about 30 grand a year, that you can deal with that th- through promising some kind of tax cut. Margaret Thatcher would never have been stupid enough to come out with anything like that. She seems to think it's an article of faith that you could increase tax revenue by cutting tax. But that is a sort of Fisher Price, my first right wing economics lesson view of the world. And most people grow out of that quite quickly, long before they're in the position that she's currently in. 
I mean, I think she more or less, more or less has the same worldview as Boris Johnson. But Boris Johnson had to abandon all of it the second he got into government and worked out that everything is kind of a mess and B, life isn't that simple. And what she won't have is the same sort of great reservoir of very superficial charm that Boris Johnson had. And therefore, she will find it extremely hard to pivot away from what she imagines to be her own beliefs um, and will very quickly come unstuck. I was just going to slightly disagree, I think. I I do think that she does have, you know, a sense of ideology that is actually quite strong by the standards of the Parliamentary Conservative Party. Whether that says more about her or the Parliamentary Conservative Party, I'm not sure. But, you know, she's always been that kind of small state conservative, low tax, deregulated, etc. wing of the party ever since the moment she got elected. And I think that even the argument that she used to be a Lib Dem doesn't fully wash because I think the Lib Dem has always had, the Lib Dems have always had a wing of their party that's been kind of, again, quite small state and actually in very pro-deregulation, etc. So I would really argue that she will not make a good prime minister specifically right now uh, with everything that's happening because she, she has that kind of weird backbone on that stuff where she really just wants tax cuts, for example, even though they make, as you've pointed out, absolutely no sense right now. But she's like, no, but you know, that's the thing I believe and that's what I want to do. So, um, so yeah, I would say weirdly, by, by the standards of her peers, at least, I think she, she does have weirdly strong beliefs, but I may be wrong. Tom, the whole Britannia Unchained mindset is based on this idea that someone or something is holding the country back from its great destiny. Once you've exhausted all the obvious targets and are now down to blaming the entire general public, that doesn't seem to be a vote-winning strategy. How is Trust going to cope once she's facing the entire electorate rather than just a very small core of Tory members? Yeah, I mean, it's the classic, isn't it? Truss has served under three Tory prime ministers. She will be the fourth that she serves under, i.e. herself. Absolutely all of them have promised to unleash Britain's potential, haven't they? David Cameron talked about not being not here to spread, not to defend privilege, but to spread it. Um, Theresa May stood outside Downing Street um, talking about how she was going to stick up for the downtrodden. I can't remember the exact words. Boris Johnson's election slogan was to unleash Britain's potential. And here, here is Liz Truss. She's worked for all of them. And somewhat conveniently, all that potential finds itself still on the leash and thus it falls to her to unleash it. Now, all politicians have tried it, some with more success than others. I think you're going to be finding, I think you're going to find it much harder to promise to unleash potential when you are the fourth prime minister from the same party 12 years in. And I think absolutely everyone's had enough of it. So that will not make life easy for her. Arthur, I mean, is this stereotype of the lazy, unproductive worker in Britain, is this something which the left have also fed into? I mean, the whole trope of you can't get a British plumber, but the Polish ones that turn up are so hardworking is in some ways making the same point, albeit from a different angle. I think there is some of that, but I think there's a basic point here, which is this kind of, it's it's this really deadening kind of anti-intellectualism about this whole argument, because the basic there's a sort of idea that a worker is somebody doing a manual job. And if they're not productive, they need to try harder. And, you know, their, their face should be a bit redder and they should sweat a bit more. And, and it's just, it's such a kind of simplistic kind of 19th century concept of work. Obviously, when you look at places that are more productive, I mean, we, we've talked numerous times when we're doing these podcast recordings about the fact that someone's struggling with their internet well, you know, if people had better, faster internet in Britain, you know, that would increase productivity. So there are so many of these things that play into it. And this really stupid kind of simplistic argument. And I've, I've never really understood, is it stupid because the Tory party members are equally stupid? 
or is it stupid because our media infantilizes uh, the public and and forces us to have a stupid debate? I I don't know, but it, it is undoubtedly fucking stupid. This Wednesday marks the six-month anniversary of Russia invading Ukraine. What was supposed to be Putin's blitzkrieg has instead turned into a bogged-down nightmare of Russian atrocities and a story of Ukrainian resistance. With no end to the war in sight, we thought it was the right time to look at what it's meant for the world and where the conflict might go next. Um, Arthur, it's commonplace to say that the Ukraine war has changed the world, but what are the ways it's changed geopolitics irrevocably? What has gone which is not coming back? Well, I think the thing that's gone is the kind of easy uh, coexistence of living off cheap Russian energy while saying, but we we need to be careful about Russia. You know, Russia's a difficult country and and we mustn't uh, sort of enable Russia too much. But at the same time, like I say, we buy their cheap energy and, and, and of course, here in the UK, we we bank their money and and we launder their money. And I I guess that sort of self-delusion, which was practised in different ways by different countries but particularly with the energy in, in, in Central Europe and, and here in Western Europe, more with the finance and the investment, we've just got to start getting real. And in a weird way, I think it's a sort of delayed reaction of perhaps what we've learned about China, which is the same thing, that we can buy their cheap manufactured goods, but oh no, that they won't force us to sort of do things their way and they won't be nasty to the Uyghurs. And actually, we realise that they are going to do that and therefore do we want to keep buying their cheap manufactured goods? So I think, you know, the easy life has has gone irrevocably. Sorry, everybody. Much of the focal point of the conflict at the moment is coming to Crimea. Why is this region so important to Putin and the Russian worldview? Is it emotional as much as it is strategic? I think it is partly because it is a region full of Russian speakers. For all the time that Ukraine has been independent, Crimea has been part of it. But during the Soviet period, it was at at various points also part of Russia. So I think there's that factor. I I think the other factor is that after the 2014 invasion, which was arguably the sort of high point of the Russian special services kind of activity, the, the little green men and all that, I think it was seen that Russia had made permanent its acquisition of Crimea. And they built that famous bridge. And it was almost as if it was no longer joined on to Ukraine. But these recent incidents, so you've had in the last week, two airfields and an ammunition base have all been basically been struck by the Ukrainians, whether from missiles or, or you know, special operations. The Russians are realizing that even Crimea may not be secure for them. So I think this is where it's kind of that the, it, it's where the sort of the, the last redoubt of Russia's myth of its its seizure of Ukraine will may die. There's widespread fear about Russia's ongoing presence at the Zaporizhia nuclear plant. Um, a deal was approved on Saturday to allow inspectors to visit the site after a call between Putin, French President Emmanuel Macron. Is this a tentatively encouraging sign of diplomacy at least starting to work in some ways? Well, I think what it shows is all along Macron's uh, decision to... Con- continue to engage with Putin against some criticism and, and even sort of a derision from particularly sort of Atlanticist Anglophone countries. You know, Macron was right to do that. Macron has never given Putin what he's wanted, but he's been somebody who's able to talk to him and make him see reason. And and this is, this is what it's there for. And, and it's good that he's done that. And it's good, perhaps, that the 
French political scene has enough maturity that he can do this without being accused of being some sort of proto-Russian agent, which is basically what people have been saying in this country. Tom, are you expecting Truss to take the same stance on Ukraine as Johnson has done? Yes, absolutely. She's been an integral part of it. So far, in the, in the six months so far, there's not really been any domestic politics to be made from re, from Ukraine. Yes, there's been photo opportunities, and Boris Johnson liked to call Zelensky whenever he was in trouble, but there's not been any disagreement, certainly not cross-party disagreement between Conservative and Labour. They've not, no, no, no one has made any sort of political um, weather from it, if you like. I, I imagine Truss will do exactly the same, and I imagine whatever she does, the Labour Party will support her. Where it will become potentially um, more difficult is when the resolve is potentially tested over the winter. If energy prices are expected to be as high as they are, um, then there will be enormous domestic problems to deal with, although we don't quite know what this trust will do about those because she will certainly have to do something. But I can't see any possible alternative than the complete unequivocal support for for Ukraine, the continuing flow of arms, if there is, if she will need to hold her nerve in the winter, um, and it's very difficult to see whether or not the other parties may start to make things more complicated, consider different solutions, different outcomes. But you would really need to know what situ- what what position the war will be in at that point, and th- there is no point speculating on that. Marie, Tom mentioned there the issue of energy. As we approach winter, is the continent ready for that potential energy war with Putin, do you think? Is the mainland Europe then more or less exposed than we are over here? Whilst I was reading up on it today, and according to the AMF, uh, there's been a 60% drop in Russian gas deliveries uh, since June 2021. And apparently the continent could basically cope reasonably easily, Emphasis on the reasonably with ten percent more, but I think all bets are kind of off. Um, if if it you know if Russia ends up kind of getting out of the market entirely, I think weirdly Britain would not be as um, like struggling as much as some other countries. So especially in Central Europe, but then um, you know Germany was the largest importer of Russian gas in twenty twenty, followed by Italy. So these countries I think uh, would have a bad time. So whereas yeah, I think the UK only imported four percent uh, of its needs from Russia. So weirdly, I think mainland Europe and especially I think parts of Central Europe would be uh, w- would have a generally very tough time. And I think politically, it's been quite interesting watching countries like Germany domestically who've already started giving quite dire warnings to people and saying, you know, you will need to use less energy this winter, whatever happens. So th- there's been some pitch rolling there. France as well, I think Macron gave quite a striking speech uh, a few days ago, basically preparing French people for a very, very bleak winter. Which does kind of beg the question of why no one's kind of no no one's really been doing this here at all. You know, we're still kind of weirdly in the just slightly less sunlit uplands uh, territory. I think in Britain right now, which feels a bit worrying, given we know what's coming and what may be coming. And Arthur, just to wrap up, if we can sort of step back and take a longer view here, President Zelensky is intent on regaining all ground occupied by Russian troops, including Crimea. But what could a negotiated peace look like, do you think? Do we have any existing models which are applicable from other conflicts? It's very difficult because any uh, outcome which results in Ukraine losing territory uh, in the face of this completely you know, disgraceful Russian aggression, war crimes, all the rest of it, feels like a completely unacceptable outcome. However... There are lots of examples of conflicts that freeze in place. And of course, you can, you know, one example that perhaps people might be familiar with, although they may not think of it as a 
as an analogy is Cyprus. You have an unrecognized Turkish Republic of North Cyprus, and you have the bit of Cyprus that is, you know, the, the Greek Republic of Cyprus that's now an EU member state. And that, that conflict has been frozen in time for decades, and you have a UN monitoring force and all the rest of it. We may well end up seeing bits of Ukraine looking a bit like that. And that, of course, would be a very bitter pill for Ukraine to swallow. But if you look at what's happening in the actual conflict, Ukraine is getting better at striking Russia, you know, uh, Russian entities but behind the front lines, uh, like those ones in Crimea we were talking about. But the actual front line is pretty static at the moment. And it's not 100% clear that, that it would be straightforward for Ukraine to suddenly kind of turn the tide of, of the actual war on the ground. So I think, you know, there may be some very, very uh, bitter and unsatisfactory carve up, but that may just be w- what it works out as being. Finally, it's the era of the £10 flight over. That's the verdict of Ryanair boss Michael O'Leary, who said air travel at rock bottom prices is to end thanks to the soaring cost of fuel. Speaking to the BBC, O'Leary said that the airline's trademark £1 and £10 fares to Europe will not be seen again for a number of years. So, what will these price rises mean for air travel going forwards? Joining us to discuss this, we'd like to welcome back independent aviation, transport and travel journalist John Walton. Welcome back, John. Hello, great to be back. John, is Michael O'Leary right? Is the era of cheap air travel as we know it really over? Look, let's start with Michael O'Leary has never been one to shy away from a good interview. Right. Um, and he's sort of achieved his objective in that we're now talking about what he said. Um, but this, this whole thing where, you know, 10 euro flights, seven euro flights, I remember when there were, you know, five euro flights, whatever they were, right? This in aviation is what's known as lead in pricing. So right now, today, it means no hold bag, not even an overhead bin bag, right? No seat, no nothing, absolute bog standard basic. And that won't be every seat on the plane, right? As we all know, if we try to book it, Pricing is what's called dynamic, right? So it's essentially based on what airlines think passengers will be willing to pay. Let's say you want to fly London to Dublin tomorrow, right? You'll pay around 150 quid or so, right? It'll be more if you want to fly somewhere with fewer flights or whether it's further away and so on. If you fly in September, you're going to pay about 15 quid. Now, is that sustainable economically? Well, sort of, right? Because you only just have to sell one ticket at that fare to be able to advertise flights at that fare. You can sell one, one flight at 10 euros and the remaining 188 seats on that plane at 150 euros. Will airlines still sell ridiculously cheap fares to make headlines in adverts? Probably. The question is, how many of them will they sell at that lower price? And with, with fuel prices rising in particular, I think it's probably going to be fewer rather than more, but there will still be deals out there. How does Ryanair and that model, let you say, of grabbing those headlines with aggressively low prices, how does that fit into the market in general? Is that a huge part of it? Is it a small loss leading part? Where, where's the bigger picture on that? All airlines do this same strategy to an extent, right? So if you're a British Airways on Air France, you're basically doing the same thing, except without necessarily the um, no overhead bin bag level pricing. Right. So British Airways on this route is probably something like 30 to 40 pounds instead of like 10 to 15 pounds. But it's, they, they still use that same model, right? The, the first seat to go, they can advertise as really cheap. Um, but then as you get closer in or as a, more people book, book the seats up, the prices go up and up. Uh, and then if, if they get close in and no one's still buying, then you would get the sort of last minute deals of where you end up with a fairly inexpensive seat that you're like, hang on, I'm flying next week and it's only, you know, 
20 quid to go to Dublin on a Tuesday at two, half past four in the morning? Well, that's because they haven't been able to fill that plane as much as they wanted to, right? Air travel is broadly becoming greener. Things like lighter planes, greater fuel efficiencies are improving the model. Um, are we expecting that to help lower the cost of travel in years to come? Not really, no. Um, so this this is a bit of a, of a deep cut here, but in I mean, <laughs> airlines have gone through. No, we're never going to make lower fares again. Um, but in sort of, if you look in the short to medium term, right, sort of between here and twenty forty, before we have magical things like hydrogen planes, right, which Airbus is working on, basically any sort of greener aviation revolves around the more sustainable aviation fuels. Aviation calls these sustainable aviation fuels. They're not entirely sustainable, right? Because burning any sort of kerosene, whether it's made from plants or chip fat or dead dinosaurs at altitude is going to have emissions impact. But some of them, like some of the, the non-food crop plant-based, the algaes, um, and some of the sort of slightly more whiz-bang things like what's called power to energy, right? Where you can um, use sustainable energy like a solar field or a wind farm to capture carbon from the atmosphere and then sort of transform that through the use of quite a lot of power. But if it's green power, that doesn't really matter, right? Through quite a lot of power into, into a, a, a carbon-based petrochemical that you can then um, use to fly. All of that sort of, it will still have emissions, right? But it's not zero emissions. These are, however, as you might gather from the sort of slightly whiz-bangery of it all, quite expensive. So even today, um, the sustainable sort of fuel types that we have are about twice as expensive as sort of dead dinosaur, traditional fossil kerosene, right? Which is what, AV, what, what commercial aviation uses. That will come down, right? A big part of what governments in particular need to do right now is to to drive down that price and drive up the availability of these more sustainable fuels. You were last on the bunker during the absolute height of lockdown, and you were surprisingly upbeat then about the general prospects for the air industry and how it would be able to bounce back. Um, How do you feel about that assessment a couple of years on? The restart has been less than smooth in a number of places, shall we say, um, as anyone who's tried to travel through Dublin or Amsterdam or British airports, particularly Manchester, but also Heathrow this year. Uh, as experience, the restart hasn't been great. Uh, by and large, I think that assessment was was right. Yes, yes, I, yes, past me. I do think you were correct there. I think there are quite a lot of challenges, but with some fairly hefty government help and a lot of work by people within the industry, uh, many of whom were treated fairly shabbily by their employers during the whole time. Part of the problem is it's it's like whenever you talk about anything in the UK right now, part of it is due to external factors. The remaining constraints on the aviation industry right now include the fact that there's very little to no demand for flights into China, and there's very little to no ability for flights to overfly Russia. And so if you're flying between you know, uh, Europe and Asia right now, which is a massive demand market normally, you're flying for an extra four or five hours, depending on where you're leaving from. You know, if that wasn't there, obviously aviation would be in a much better place. Um, if China was open, aviation would be in a much better place. Marie, what do you make of the end of the cheap flights? Will it stop you getting away? Uh, oh, no, God, absolutely not. I mean, you know, I do live in Britain. Uh, but no, m- more seriously, I think, um, you know, I'm kind of split between three countries because I grew up in France, but my mum's Moroccan and half my family's in Morocco. So since I was born, I think I took my first flight when I was 10 months old to go to Marrakesh to meet my grandparents. Um, I've always flown and I'll keep doing it. But I think, 
you know, th- that being said, it's been a really interesting discussion, but it does somewhat feel like it's happening in a bit of a vacuum because who can travel anyway right now? You know, I'm and I consider myself to be someone on a decent salary. I was meant to go to New York next year because my best friend moved there. And I thought, you know, I was meant to do it in 2020. For obvious reasons, it didn't happen. And I thought, OK, fine, I've been saving. 2023, I'm going to do my 10 days in New York with my best mate. Um, this has now been done, downgraded to hopefully four days in Europe somewhere <laughs> because I've looked at my finances and I'm like, there is no world in which I can afford 10 days in New York next year, even with a cheap flight. Mm. Um, so I do think, you know, that, that, that there's a slight element here of, in any case, in 2023, 2024, who really is going to be flying away just, you know, randomly just for a bit of fun? Like who who's does that apply to really? I was going to say, I mean, how much of a change is this? Because someone like you, you obviously live in a different country to where you grew up. You recently moved to Venice, you know, for a sort of short-term relocation. Effectively, a life like the one you have has been completely enabled by the availability of cheap travel. Well, I mean, sort of yes and no, because I think, you know, immigrants do just have to find a way. Because when I was a kid, for example, so there were no, so I grew up in Nantes, uh, there were no direct flights between Nantes and Marrakesh. So what we did was, you know, we all had to get the train to Paris and then we'd get a flight to Marrakesh. That cost tons of money. Like, I remember when I was a kid, obviously in the 90s, uh, flights were incredibly expensive, especially from France to Africa. Um, and, you know, we just found a way to do it because you know, our family's there. So so it is a case of, I think, most people just try and make do and spend money, you know, less money on other things and make more sacrifices, I suppose, to be able to go back to their homes, which is very bleak. Arthur, um, should we be glad if 10 euro flights are to end? I mean, no more carbon crazy stag dues to Riga and the like, which I know you're quite fond of. Yeah, I think we probably should be glad. Um, but there is that slight thing where the generation that had had a 10, 20 years of cheap flights and going to explore nice cities of Europe now sort of pulling up the ladder behind us, which feels a bit like quite a lot of other things that are happening to younger generations at the moment. Obviously, uh, it it allowed a lot of people, particularly in Britain, to discover slightly less well-known parts of the European continent that they probably never would have got to. And in spite of the stag do crowd, you know, probably on, on balance, it was a positive thing for both sides. And well, I was going to ask, I mean, you've spent a lot of your professional life representing the UK abroad. How do you think that cheap flight era changed the way that countries and citizens view each other? What was the sort of soft power impact of it? Yeah, well, one thing, I, I never actually worked somewhere where that that sort of thing was in play. And you know, there are still parts of the world where the cheap flight has never taken off. So, for example, in the Caribbean, which you'd think would be ideal for that, lots of islands, you know, clearly people want to move around. It's, it, you, you'd, you'd imagine it would be good for sort of budget airlines for various annoying bureaucratic reasons. That's never happened. So I think one of the things we have to recognise is how lucky we've been in, in Europe in particular. I mean, uh, John will know more about this than I do, and clearly North America has budget airlines. But there are still parts of the world where they don't really exist. But yeah, it clearly, uh, I think particularly for, for example, sort of bits of, of um, provincial France, you know, where a new airport pops up on the Ryanair destination list and you would just go there because it, it was there. And, you'd, you know, you'd discover the charming cities um, that, that it, probably in no other circumstance people would have visited and, and, and massively beneficial for, um, for sort of, uh, you know, intercultural understanding, albeit 
uh, we still voted for Brexit. So I'm, I'm not sure what the, the final analysis of that tells us. Mm. I know as a tiny thing to agree with you. So again, having grown up in Nantes, which is home to one of the main um, airports in Western France, it is really interesting. Because when I grew up, you know, we didn't really have tourists. Or even when I moved here originally, people did not know where Nantes was. And it's been really striking now how I say, oh, you know, I come from Nantes. And quite a lot of people will say, oh my God, yeah, I've been there for a weekend. So look, it's been a massive change. But even economically, I think for places like my hometown, we now rely massively on tourism so I'm not sure what will happen again if these people just stop coming for these long weekends. Tom how's your uh, post-Covid travel life been? Have you been taking more staycations? I mean I used to do loads of traveling when I was much younger and I do definitely think that you know when you listen to um, um, the one good thing that young young people can claim and we were talking about stag do's a minute ago right is when you listen to like my parents generation talk about that they'll say oh my stag do was a night in the pub you know and I, and I, I went, and that was it and there was a night, night in the dog and whistle or what have you and the one thing that young people have arguably had better than the generation before them was this cheap opportunity to explore and there's nothing good about that opportunity going away again all 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 narrowing of horizons is bad isn't it 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 may it may have advantages in terms of climate change but that's something that needs to be solved technologically rather than through abstention abstentionism rich people won't abstain um things getting that cheap cheap rights being taken away just makes life harder for people who have less money there's nothing there's nothing good about it at all John, this summer, UK airports have been hit with huge amounts of disruption and numerous flights have been cancelled. Um, you're based in France nowadays. Um, what's been the situation in mainland Europe? Yeah, it's it's same, same, but different, really. Um, so at a relatively small number of relatively critical airports in Europe, Amsterdam, Dublin, I mean, Charles de Gaulle, but like Charles de Gaulle falling over is, oh, it's a Tuesday. Oh, OK, fine. You've had a similar um, crunch as, as you've had in the UK, right? So it's general staffing, hiring, and getting security clearance for people. Post-COVID, the airports didn't basically hire back fast enough and couldn't hire back fast enough. That's been magnified in the UK, right, for, for, for a bunch of reasons, including the fact that, you know, a lot of people exited what is really a, quite a fenced-off workforce, right? If you don't have a security clearance to be able to work in an airport, getting one can be a matter of some months, now, the UK, in addition, sort of took it, obviously, with Brexit, to basically a hatchet to its labour market flexibility during the greatest pandemic of the last century, which in hindsight was not the best plan for, for that and many other reasons. The fact that you've got, you know, Amsterdam and Dublin essentially back to a rough normal, or at least getting there, while, you know, there are still, you know, a number of issues um, sort of structurally um, with with a lot of the infrastructure in the UK, breaking news: the Bunker Park podcast blames thing on Brexit, right? Um, but I do actually think that there's there is a labour market flexibility point here where the UK is in quite a difficult position. What's the answer to that? It's it's not massively rocket science, you know. It's terms and conditions: pay people more and treat them better. John, thank you so much for joining us on the Bunker today. It was a pleasure. And that brings us to the end of this week's Bunker, which means it's time for the panel's escape routes. What entertainments have given our panellists a well-earned break from the bruising world of politics? Marie? I worry I'm going to be incredibly predictable to anyone who even vaguely knows me uh, <laughs> by saying that I have adored the Sandman 
It's been so good. I'm so sad it's over because um, I'm not a comics person at all, so I've never read them. But obviously, you know, everything about it, the kind of, you know, like gothy, ethereal, fantasy-ish, whatever else you want to, is, you know, it was always going to be my thing. So, you know, I've absolutely loved every second of it. The that, Sandman's so good. That is an extremely on-brand LeConte <laughs> answer. Uh, Arthur, what's been getting you away from the uh, the heady business of the news? Well, I, I started watching a... a um a series called Gaslit, which is set around the Watergate scandal, but for sort of from the perspective of the um, perpetrators, if you like. It's brilliantly darkly funny. You've got this kind of combination of incompetent, cynical, uh, sort of Republican operatives all around uh, Richard Nixon, obviously. Some of these are historic figures who you can then get have fun sort of looking them up on Wikipedia and, and see what they were like in real life. And it's 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 good, it's funny, it, it's dark. It's got Julia Roberts and Sean Penn and various other familiar faces. Highly recommended. And Tom, what have you been doing when you've not been drinking heavily in the front row of the Tory hustings? <laughs> well, I went to the theatre last week, but it doesn't count as an escape route because it was to see the play Patriots, um, which is about the life of Boris Berezovsky. And I was quite surprised to find myself on page five of the programme standing next to him outside the courthouse when he lost his um, $6 billion uh, court case in 2011, which I covered, but it's fundamentally about the rise of Putin. So it definitely doesn't count as an escape route. The only thing I've really been doing to escape is um, about two years ago, I became just an incredibly boring person. And I'm now quite an enthusiastic um, dahlia grower. And late August is absolutely boom time for dahlia enthusiasts. I can tell you that in the bed behind my shed, it is all kicking off. It's glorious. So that is mainly what I'm doing to escape from reality. Well, Tom, I hope you're going to post some photos of it because your dahlias on Twitter, you know, are uplifting to your millions of followers. <laughs> it's not quite ready yet. I think you might get one in a week. And uh, my own rather less uh, less wholesome. I've been binging the videos on Instagram of a woman called Maddie McRae who started on uh, TikTok. She's an Australian actor, comedian, performer. They are absolutely brilliant. It's just like they're all just her on her own, multiple versions of herself, very physical comedy. Uh, kind of reminds me of like Kristen Wiig in Bridesmaids. Properly laugh out loud, funny, brilliant face for the camera. Um, she'll be an enormous film star this time next year, I would imagine. And that is the end of this week's bunker. Thanks to Marie Leconte. Thank you. Thanks to Arthur Snell. Thank you. And thanks to Tom Peck behind his shed. Thank you very much. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and a full-length show this time next week. If you like what we're doing, please do consider supporting us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. You'll be helping us pay hard-working journos and producers, and you'll get the benefits, including a shout-out on the podcast, like these. Best wishes from me to Angela Partington, John Hymas and Andrea Harmon. And it's hello from me to Richard Rackham, Muggs Vernon and Martin Williamson. And it's many thanks from me to Dan Balance, to Robin and to David Martin. And finally, many thanks and best wishes from me to Paul Rooks, Cathy Young and Henry Barnes. See you next time. The Bunker was presented by Justin Quirk with Marie LeConte, Arthur Snell and Tom Peck. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich, and me, Alex Reese. With assistant production from Kasia Tomasiewicz. Our marketing manager is Gina Richard. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>